This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready to go? I'm ready to go. Merry Christmas, Alex Steele. How are you? I'm doing very well. Merry Christmas to you. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast, Christmas Spectacular with the great Alex Steele. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I'm feeling very festive. How are you, how are you feeling? Are you feeling okay? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm fine. I, I just Sometimes I worry about you. Oh, tell me. Why is that? Well, I just think that you, you got, you're such a talented young man with tons of drive. You have vision. And I just sometimes I worry that you do too much. Like, and I'm just worried about like, you getting enough sleep? Yeah, I get enough sleep. I get enough sleep. But I mean, we're jumping straight into it, aren't we? I mean, this is well, right I mean, in the middle. <laughs> I just try, you know, I, I had to, a yeah, funny thing is, is with this podcast, I've really tried my best to not make this like an interrogation because a lot of podcasts, they'll, and I listen to a few podcasts that you've been on. I'm trying to make it a little bit more of a conversation and hopefully it becomes more enjoyable. But, and, and maybe you loosen up and relax and you'll, you'll say something you know, that you don't normally say. So, but other than that, you know, I do worry that you don't get enough sleep. Well, on the sleep note, I kind of generally do okay on sleep. You know, I'm, I'm usually getting kind of seven to eight hours, especially now that I'm back here in the UK, I've been able to sleep a little extra and take it a little bit easier. Uh, but you know, there's there's the you know general general conversational. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. And then yeah, you know, life is stressful. Life is yeah. Life is difficult, and and for sure, it's it's been uh, it's been a whirlwind. And I've I've pushed myself quite hard over the past little while. You've you've pushed yourself quite hard during a global pandemic. Congratulations. I appreciate that. Fortunately, I haven't been badly affected by it. I've just I've I've been one of the lucky ones in comparison to how it could go. You know, I was actually I was kind of messaging with you yesterday because my wife had told me that uh, England was going through a, a peer, tier four lockdown, and, and I had sent a message to Craig, who is the you know you know Craig is the kingpin of the Makery Network, and I was just like, "Are you okay?" And he said he drove from France and he got to Wales, and five min, five hours after he got to Wales, there was the lockdown was put into place, and they can't and where he is, he they all the businesses are closed after five p.m. They can't go out or something like that. I'm not 100% sure what the four tier actually Yeah, they, they completely shut down travel to and from France. It's crazy. Um, he got lucky getting, getting out in time, eh? That's I think, a, I think wow. he might have a hard time. He said, he said he might have a hard time coming back. But, you yeah. know, I don't think the French are too upset about that. I think the French are happy to have him, have, have him gone for a little bit. Yeah, the, the French are an interesting type. They're an interesting type. I can say that because I'm, I'm actually part French, so... Is I'm that right? To say that, but we're an interesting type. We're, 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 tell me, what, what side of the family is French? My mother's side of the family. Are they? Is she French? She is French. Huh? And where did, when did she come to the UK? Oh, she came to the UK. I would have, I guess, to say in the early nineties. Um, so I was born in the late nineties. I, I, I presume she would have come in the early nineties. Huh. And uh, yes, I've got grandparents in France, and in fact. I have blacksmithing and, and metalworking in, in the genes, but really? not on the side that you'd imagine more kind of uh, imminently, actually on the French side, on the mother's side of the family. So my great-grandfather was a kind of blacksmith, metalworker, and horseshoer in France, and, uh, and so that's pretty cool. So I've got some photos of him shoeing oxen. Huh. 
Oxen? Yeah, isn't that crazy? I mean, can you imagine how, what a nightmare that must be, having to put a shoe on an oxen? You know, that's an angry animal, not as... Not as <laughs> so was he... What, what, do you know... I mean, you must know much, some of his history. What was his name? Uh, his name was Louis. So kind of Louis, but franglicized. It, and so, yeah, it was, it's, it's good. Some of the other interesting tidbits about him is he was in the French army during the Second World War. And you, you know how it is. Uh, you, one worries a little bit that this story could have got embellished a little too much after, that's fine. you know, 70, 75 years. But the story goes that he was with his platoon. Um, they were in France, and they kind of came to a fork in the road um, with, with his platoon or whatever it would be called. And, uh, you know, some people came running up from one fork in the road saying, you know, uh, watch out, watch out. Um, you know, there are Germans down there. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they, the platoon then goes the other way, and the story goes, my great-grandfather then and a friend or two of his and decided, you know what, actually this doesn't seem right. We're gonna abandon the rest of these people and go the other way because this seems sketchy. And the story goes, the platoon was never found and you know they presumably died and my great-grandfather then made his way back home with a uh, box of tools that I actually have, some cool, uh, cool old uh, horseshoeing tools from, from France. And so, yeah, it's pretty, pretty neat. So did he, was, did he serve before he became a blacksmith? Well, his father, and so in the family, was blacksmithing and horseshoeing. So he, you know, from a tiny, tiny young age, probably was helping out, you know, helping, helping shoe stuff and make stuff out of steel. So I have a feeling that's then, you know, how he then went into the military, and obviously he had a skill, uh, which was horseshoeing, and so that was his job in the military. Because, of course, there was still, I guess, a lot of stuff happening on horseback and with oxen, even in the Second World War. So when you're, this, you're a young 11-year-old kid, your parents take you to the fair. They show you this, the, you know, the, the blacksmith who's doing the uh, demos. Is somebody saying to you, oh, yeah, your, gra your great-grandfather was a blacksmith? Is I, there a connection there? I, I wish I could remember it properly. I, I met my great-grandfather when I was very, very young. And I remember at some point knowing uh, that he was a blacksmith, but I don't fully know if I knew that before having gone to this fair or hmm. after. You know, it could have been a, a, a tight... Uh, <laughs> the information could have come across in, uh, in a short window either before or after type of thing, and I wouldn't really know. That's, that's, that's fascinating, because so, so, so your mother... Your mother has a rich history in France. She moves in the 90s, so she's not, you know, into the into France. So she's a... Uh, what made her come to the UK? Probably the same type, you know, probably the same type of reason that I then decided to go to the US. It's probably in the blood is just a desire to, you know, <laughs> move places. <laughs> Who knows? I, you know, what's interesting to me about you, and when I started doing this podcast, I really, I was far more interested in the person's story and when I was a kid because my parents were very uh, superficial and I was supposed to be an actor I was almost in a movie and they liked the way I looked and it got to the point where it was very clear that that was can you hear me Alec? I can hear you I, okay. just, I just muted oh, myself I'm okay, just right, right, kind right. Of okay. drink without, without worrying so yeah because I can hear because what happens is, is I can hear the, I lose you lose the fuzz on your end it's all right it's all right so when I was a kid, my family was so uh, interested in the kind of like the look that if I found it hard because I was they were far more interested in 
the 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 superficial qualities and i was far more interested in the making because i thought i would rather be known as making something so when i when i look at you and i and i see that your your start as an early age i wonder i th- i believe that your 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 family's relationship to you and your upbringing and what you were surrounded by had a huge um part in the person that you become. And I, I'm convinced also, especially with, you know, with the exception of Nick Angers, which I, by the way, I owe you an apology because I thought, I always thought it was Nick Anger and you were the first person I ever heard say Nick Angers. And I thought, I don't know if Alex got this one right, but you were hundred percent right. So I take an apology on that. Um, I feel like young things that kids that are, are experienced parents who are working hard or doing things, they develop a more of a, their exercised muscle in regards to doing things. You there? I'm there. Okay. And, oh, and, and yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think I got, I got really fortunate because when I was extre- really young, like stupid young, I was seeing my father make things in the woodwork shop. At the time, he was an avid hobby green woodworker and woodworker um, in, the, in the, I guess, kind of mid-90s, early 90s. He took a boat building course, um, and boat building in, in involves some really, I guess, you know, very accurate and precise woodwork. You know, to a, it's some kind of high caliber cabinetry that's cabinet making that's required to do boat building. And so he got to learn boat building. Took him down the rabbit hole of woodworking, and that was his that was his hobby. He got into green woodwork too, which is quite interesting. And so as I was you know, younger than I can even remember. I was seeing him make things and then also making things with him. I don't think I can remember the stage before using a wood lathe. All I remember is that using a wood lathe. I don't remember life before it, if you know what I mean. I got very Hmm. lucky that I was able to get exposed to people making things, my father making things, and myself making things way early on. And so I think that must have been incredibly formative um, in terms of that environmental effect on me. Can then you, also, I, my father was an avid, and you know, he's, he's actually getting back into woodwork some more now. He was an avid woodworker. My sister is an artist. She paints, is you know, very creative and a very talented artist. My mother, um, in many respects, is an artist and does furniture restorations and is super practical and she's a super tough woman. There's, there's a whole lot of kind of creative stuff in the blood. So, you know, the environmental effect had, had a, a lot to do with it, I'm sure. But then I also, I guess, got lucky that everybody's making stuff and is being creative in the family. Now, the green woodworking is interesting to me because I saw in your video where you first came to, where you were looking for, it was the power, looking for a new power hammer. And you went into your dad's shop and... It was your father is not the kind of woodworker that like makes a spice rack with with two by fours for mom and then mom you know says oh thank you and then like rolls her eyes. This is like really precision stuff. And can you just kind of what is green woodworking? So the idea is is you fell a tree and you make furniture from it when it is green, i.e., it is still wet wood. It's not been dried or or kind of cured or anything like that. It is wet wood straight from the forest. Um, and so you either know somebody that has you know, freshly 
fallen some ash or you go and fall it yourself somewhere where you can and you get this big lump of ash you saw it down into I don't know maybe kind of three foot lengths and then from one of these rounds of ash you then split it and you split this thing it's all following the grain and you create a chair where you know you're working it by splitting using a draw knife and you end up with individual components that are built along the grain and so you know the individual components are really really strong because of the nature there of, of the way they're made and what you can use to your advantage in green woodwork is the fact that as the wood dries it will shrink so if you can visualize a chair right now like a traditional wooden chair um, between all four legs would be rungs that would be kind of going horizontally and they would have tenons that then go into holes in the legs so normally you might kind of drill the hole, put the tenon in, and then glue it or wedge it. But what you can do is you can take that um, rung, that tenon, that male part of, the, of that assembly, and you can forcefully dry it out while you work on some of the other components. Hmm. It will shrink, and it's going to then kind of stay put at that, at that final dimension. Whereas then when you drill the holes in the other components, and you then squeeze it all together, you get a press fit, one, but two, the female component, the legs, it eventually dries and it shrinks over top of that already dried tenon, and so you get this interference fit, which is incredibly strong. And he's, he's a really, really talented woodworker. All the chairs in our house are made by him. The vast majority of them are greenwood chairs, and you know a lot of these chairs are 20 years old or more, and they don't have a drop of glue in them, and they're as strong as they were the day they were built. They're light as can be. It's a really, really, really cool technique. That is amazing. And if these, if you see the video, the chairs are very delicate, and this isn't like this isn't fumbling around. This is completely one hundred percent. I mean, it's very similar to blacksmithing. I would say so in certain respects, because there's a, there's a good. A term that my that I, my father has talk, used in talking to me many times is the workmanship of risk. And there is a book titled "The Workmanship of Risk," um, and I couldn't tell you a whole lot more about the book, but I think that's where he picked up the term. And hmm. I think there's a similar kind of crossover there, where in green woodwork, you're, you're you know you're at the peril of this natural material where, okay, it's going to shrink, what if it cracks? You know, you make a bowl out of green wood, and then as it, as it shrinks and dries, it's going to potentially crack and get these interesting effects. And there's a nice artistry to, you know, creating something and then letting the material take hold of it. I don't know if it's the exact same thing with metal, but, you know, in metal there is a certain amount of, you know, well, that's, that's how it is. This is as much as I can create with the process, and part of that is beautiful. Hmm. So, what he, that's, that's, he, because like I said, I mean, his work is incredible. And I, and I, would, I would imagine that just being around that, I, I mentioned uh, Joshua Prince a lot because when we interviewed Joshua Prince, he grew up, his parents were, uh, his parents were uh, artists. So they would have stuff like, um, they would have table saws in the kitchen. So he was around this really intense style of, uh, of creativity and almost like an unorthodox upbringing because you feel and you, you, you see and you hear all the, um, 
this part of nature. This is the nature of your growing up and you're seeing everything like that. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's part of life. You know, life is that stuff gets built when you're in that kind of childhood. Can you just do me one quick favor? And you don't have to mute your, your mic when you're in between because it, it, it's, it's going to sound. It'll be fine. You, okay. you, if you want to take a whiz, if you want to take a drink, you take a, go ahead and take a glug. I'll, okay, I'll take that. the glug. <laughs> yeah, just take the glug. So I, I think that I would, this morning actually thinking, I've been like doing a lot of thought, thinking about your work and, and, and your videos and your YouTube. And I'm not going to, we're going to, we don't have to do a huge, you know, origin story. Because everybody knows pretty much who you are. I was talking to my 16 year old daughter. And I was asking her about life, and I was thinking, well, what do you, where do you see yourself in five years, and where do you see yourself, in, you know, in two years, and college, and stuff like that. And I said to her, have you ever thought about, have you ever thought about quitting high school or going to, or not going to college? And she goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure that college is right for everybody, but I'm planning on going to college. When you told your parents at 16 that you wanted to be done with school How, what did they say well i think that as they should be they were apprehensive about it um and they were they were careful for not just kind of latch on to you know my women desire you know whatever kind of women desire i had and so there was you know there was there was pushback um, you know, from the parents, you know, as to whether this was the right decision. My mother was more supportive of the idea than my father was. And again, you know, I think rightfully so. You should, when, when, a, when a child is trying to make a big decision that has long-term effects, you know, that, there, there should be some friction in between that so that the child, who is a child as I was when I was 16, can know that this is a serious decision. You know, we're talking the difference between two years of, of, of my life just being spent slightly uh, with slightly less enjoyment by being in school compared to potentially a very bad result down the line if I wasn't uh, capable of making something of myself without an education and I wasn't able of uh, I wasn't able to you know let myself succeed without that rest of the education you know the, the consequences could be could be quite large and so there was mm. some pushback absolutely there were meetings with teachers and 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 stuff like that you know it was a it was a little bit of a process uh, but you know eventually they uh, they conceded and, and let me do what I was kind of clearly uh, very driven and focused on doing so you, when you told your parents this is it I'm going to be doing this for what how did you lay it out to them well did you say it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a one meeting type of thing. It was, um, you know, it was years of me saying I didn't really enjoy school. And it was years of me saying I didn't really enjoy school and I preferred making things and I wanted to make things. Um, and, you know, I felt like I was learning more and developing more in my weekends and in my evenings than I was in school. And so, the, you know, it was, it was a long process. It wasn't just, you know, okay, here's the day. I'm laying out the news. Listen up, folks. I want to leave school and be done with this stuff. It was, you know. I guess, I guess for me, I'm fascinated by your parents' uh, support of your decision. And it was a gamble that obviously paid off. I would be, as a parent, and my kid, you know, I have a high opinion of my kid. I would, I would be very, very 
apprehensive about her even not going to college and I, she's college bound she she she's very you know she wants to do things with herself and she thinks that in order for her to do what she wants to do she's gonna have to get some better education your parents are like but the between your drive and your parents support it's you kind of defy the odds you know and again i think one stacks the odds it wasn't just a case of you know I'm entering this with the you know the uh, the general probability of success that you know there might be with somebody that is a high school dropout. Um, the odds were stacked in my favor, you know, partly because I'd got really really fortunate to have been able to spend time with great blacksmiths that helped give me an education that gave me the skills to then kind of. Um, step up into making things in in business and so you know that was one part of the equation is that you know I'd learned how to make tools for Brian Brazil and and I'd been given a really fantastic um, education in the time that I'd spent learning from and working with him I mean I I mean it in in the most you know respectful way that you've taken you've taken these opportunities and then you've soared with them and I think that your drive. I actually listened to an episode. You were you were in a podcast called I think it was Made for Profit or something like that, and you said something that was like so stunning to me. You said that you take responsibility for everything, and that the decisions that you make, the things that happen, the things that go wrong, the things that go right, whatever, you take full responsibility for them. And I thought that that was like you kind of broke the mold of this entitled you young younger person, and I was. I was so impressed with your uh, your opinion in regards to taking responsibility, and I think that this your your journey, which is you know astronomical, is is it has to do with that that concept of you took that responsibility at a young age. Say, All right, I'm not going to go to college anymore, but I'm going to get the shop at 16, and then I'm going to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Well, I mean, I think it's. The journey has been the uh, the epitome of kind of taking my own responsibility for stuff because as soon as as soon as it was it, you know, I was no longer relying on on teachers to kind of you know push me to do the things that I needed to do. I was just relying on me and needing to pay rent on the workshop. You know, then there's no other question really. It can't be anybody else's fault. Of course, but it's hard for it's hard for you know even adults. I mean, we talk to people on knife talk and all these things, and people wanting to you know turn their hobby into a, into professional. There's a lot of you know feelings of like you know they're they're people don't take full responsibility and they just make excuses. I, I and I'm just you're you're fascinating because you've really taken all the responsibility. You've made a game plan and then you've executed it, which is very similar to what a blacksmith does. You know, blacksmithing is taking your materials and you're heating it up and then you know the before you take it out of the fire, you know exactly what you're going to do to execute something that's beautiful. And I and I feel like that there's been a lot of uh similarities in regards to the way you go about doing things. I think that probably stems from you know, in certain part the actual craft itself you know not only does uh you know does the person i bet you could say something really meaningful it could sound like a bit of poetry if you said it right i'm not going to be able to do that so you know but not only does the person do the craft but the craft does the person yeah you know in the sense that not only do we do blacksmithing 
but by virtue of the way you have to approach blacksmithing, it helps form us in a certain way. Um, you know, there's nothing else that gets the job done other than the work you put into the bar of metal. You can't complain about somebody else uh, not making the bit of metal into the shape that you want because ultimately you've got the tools, you've got the heat, you've got the fire, it's a bit of metal, it's a bit of metal that's the same bit of metal anybody else has. There's only one person in between that bit of metal changing into something awesome and, and that's you swinging the hammer. And you know, that might well be formative on a person. You know, when you're doing this day in, day out, you are in charge of this bit of metal and you realize that there's only one thing that changes it into its final shape. Maybe that helps us realize that, you know, in every other day, in, in, in general, every day-to-day -day activities, we're the only person um, in between what it is that we want. So, so when you first got out and you started to do your own thing, you had your own shop, what were the jobs that you were taking on? Ooh. Not very good, really. I was, it, was, it was a proper, like, from the ground up beginnings. I mean, I had no concept once I, I mean, even, even when I was fully out of school, I didn't even have a concept of how much money I needed to make. Um, I just wanted to make stuff. And so the beginnings were really, really, you know, rocky terrain. One of the first jobs I took on, um, well, one of the first jobs I took on while I was still in school was a sculpture, which was pretty cool. With some, uh, it was a Brian Brazil kind of style sculpture that I made, uh, that I made kind of big, like six foot tall crane family hmm. with some, you know, cattails and stuff like that. Uh, but then from there, I made some security grills for a local business, um, you know, like three sure. quarter by quarter inch flat bar, all hot riveted together. It's kind of cool, and installed it and charged like you know, 1400 bucks or something for a bunch of these things and I remember that at the beginning I was trying to make like a hundred dollars a day as my shop rate you know that was that was what I was trying to do and so you know there was little bits like that I made a handrail or two you know again barely and even on paying jobs like barely scraping by what I needed to needed to do to kind of pay a $250 rent on the workshop because by goodness, that was a hell of a deal. Yeah. So it, it really wasn't a whole lot. What really pivoted um, me into a more profitable direction is one day I was like, you know what? I, uh, I want to make a little bit of money. I want to make 20 pounds. So I'm going to go to the workshop and I'm going to make a pair of tongs and I'm just going to put them on eBay. I'm going to make a pair of tongs. It's not going to be something used on eBay. I'm just going to make a brand new pair of tongs, put them on eBay, see what happens. Put them on eBay for 24 pounds and you know, a couple of days later they sell. I wrap them up in some cardboard. Uh, I drive to the post office. I handwrite on the guy's address and I mail it. And then I keep the listing up and I just say, you know, it's like a two to three day lead time on dispatch. And so then an order comes in, I make a pair of tongs. An order comes in, I make a pair of tongs. And, you know, I did that half a dozen or a dozen times and realized, oh, wait, you know, that whole time where I was learning to make tools from Brian Brazil and getting somewhat decent at making tools, whereas I have zero idea how to make a gate or a railing and have no way to make that good and make money at it. Well, I could just make tools, considering that's what I've been taught how to do. Yeah. So I then started making more tools and made a website and sold more tools and slowly, 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 slowly started to kind of get a foothold and see the direction that I needed to go. And then you also started teaching classes, right? Mm -hmm. And that was, that was off of the 
tool making. You know, people see the tools that you make, they want to learn to do the same. And again, you know, all credit to to Brian Brazil for the education he gave me and a lot of the other young blacksmiths that have spent time with him is part of what we learned was not only to make things but also how to present the process of making things. And so it meant that I was fortunately well equipped to teach a class and I taught my first three day uh, tool making class, 120 pounds a day, all materials included one on one. Those were the days. And wow. Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was very much a, uh, you know, a case of in some respects, fake it till you make it type of thing, because you know I didn't have a track record of teaching a bunch of classes, and so you know I had to make sure I took plenty of photos of everything that I was doing all the time, so that I could use it on the the website that I would build and use it on Instagram to help kind of promote what I did, and so it was a really uh, you know from the ground up uh, bootstrap pulling type of thing where you know everything that I did became content to market you know, the next opportunity to do it also. What gave you the idea, what gave you like the, the drive? Because I, I really kind of go back to you and your drive because it's just, it's stunning. And what gave you that drive at a young age to say, you know what, I need to go see, uh, get taught by Brian Brazil? Well, there it was a fascination and appreciation of the techniques with which he was working. You know, I was... At the time, the very first time that I got exposed to Brian Brazil, I was 13, and so I was—I had probably seen every single blacksmithing video on YouTube, you know, 2000 uh, <laughs> in 2011. I'd probably seen every single video. I was going through i4 giant like nobody's business, you know, reading everything I could, wanting to learn and soak up as much information as I could, uh, because there's only so much time that I could forge. I could only forge one day a week, or sometimes two days a week. Um, obviously over the weekend, and so in the, in the rest of the time, um, I was just trying to learn as much as I could online. I saw his techniques and his videos, I saw how much metal he was moving, and that just really appealed to me. I thought, wow, how cool is this? You know, he can make a, a one-heat tongue like this is unbelievable. I, I've, I've got to see more and more and more. And at the time, he was teaching classes, and another blacksmith was working with him by the name of Lyle Wynne, who was taking photos of all of the classes that Brian taught. And so there were albums with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos of showing the process of making all sorts of things, all sorts of tools, all sorts of things. So there was so much content out there that Brian had put out there, that Lyle had put out of Brian's classes. And I just soaked it up. I was reading and trying to learn and watch as much as I could. And so I just went down the, the, rabbit, the, the rabbit hole of everything that he had ever put you know, online about the craft of blacksmithing, and I was really, really entranced with it. Um, I don't know much about, you know, from the drive part of it, other than just you know, when I get really interested in things, I'm really, really, really interested, and I wanna, I wanna find out everything there is to know about it as quickly as possible. And so that began the journey of then wanting to go and learn from him in person. When, were you 13 when you went to go to Mississippi? I was indeed. So my mother and I went to Mississippi, and we were there for 10 days or something like that, and we were fortunate enough to be able to take a class from him. What, what did she do while you were taking the class? She hung out with his wife. Wow. So 10 days. So you only did the 10-day class, and did it change your life? Oh, I mean, absolutely, but it was also the beginning of a 
you know, a relationship and a mentorship from Brian then, you know, lasted several, several years where, you know, I almost every year I was for a period of time forging with him and learning from him. Hmm. So you come back and now it's all things between before going to Brian Brazil and after Brian Brazil, how did it change the way you saw blacksmithing? It's, it almost feels like ancient history now. So right. I, I, I don't know how well I'd be able to, you know, or how accurately I'd be able to answer the question. Um, but I left with a, you know, a much, much broader tool set of, of techniques and, and abilities for sure. Because before then, you know, I couldn't make a hammer and I came back and I was able to make some hammers with a friend swinging a sledgehammer hmm. and, and do that type of thing. And, and so there was also a, you know, a, a renewed spark and, and excitement about the craft. You know, you take, a, you take a class, you get home always way excited about it and you want to put things into practice. Um, that, that, I, what, I also see a similarity between you and a lot of guys who are, who, who've come to see you. Like you went to see Brian when you were 13 and then you get young Will Stelter. He comes to see you when he's a young guy. Same thing with, uh, with Mr. Uh, Mr. Hardy, Ethan Hardy. They both come, they, they come to you and you almost you get the sense that they're these like these very supportive parents and these very driven kids and they know what they want and they have the support of their parents and their personal drive and it's very very you guys are in a different group you're in a different group than the kids that I was growing up with you know there's I don't remember seeing kids who who said uh, I need to go take a class from here and we're going to go across the go across the Atlantic Ocean to go see it you know I just think that and I, I just I look at you all you guys and I, and I just I see a drive that you don't see very often I, I think there's you know there's something about I guess the enthusiasm when you're really young when you get into something like this uh, you know you're you're just so enthusiastic about this craft that you've taken up and so I think that that helps uh, but what I also think helps is the fact that we're, we're able to connect with these other like-minded people so well because of the internet yeah. you know otherwise how on earth would Ethan have ever known that I existed in England and I had learnt from Brian and I was teaching classes if it wasn't for the internet you know it, mm. it's, it's really brought a lot of you know uniquely interested people together you know I think Ethan has a, a friend group of other young blacksmiths that are ridiculously talented you know, it's it's weird to say the next generation because they're whatever four or five years younger uh, at most mm. than myself. So it, it feels like a gimmick to, you know, to say that. It feels like it's just uh, it, it's ridiculous. But you know, Ethan, I take I take a class from 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 Brian. The knowledge that I get, you know, then ends up uh, you know morphing into something where I then teach Ethan. The knowledge that he gets then morphs into his his bubble and ecosystem of friends. It's just cool what happens with the internet, where interests can be learnt so well because you can connect with people that are also interested. But it's the guy, it's the people who also are able to take classes. Like you can learn as much as you can, and you can fiddle around with a you know a, a railroad track and stuff like that. But without the actual technical 
expertise and the text, the teaching, you you just kind of flounder. Don't yeah, that's 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 true. And so there's there is a selection, you know. And so then part of something that then also happens in that type of scenario is who is the person uh, that then ends up, you know, maybe kind of starting to succeed well at the beginning. Well, it's going to be the people whose parents drove them to go and buy a bag of coal and, uh, you know, drove them to a blacksmithing conference and, you know, flew with them to Mississippi to take a class and flew with them to England to take a class. And so you then end up with, yeah, people that have succeeded because of parents that were willing and able to help them succeed. Well, supportive. I'm I'm convinced that, you know, the people that I talk to on this podcast, a lot of them do things either because they had the support of their family or they do it in spite of their family. And I'm convinced that there's traumas and there's benefits in growing up. And there are these little things that happen when you're nurtured at a young age that kind of blossom into the person that you are. Um, I think that your surroundings and I think that the way you're supported and I think the way these young people are, are treated allows them to blossom in a way that is it's not everybody everybody can't I don't believe everybody can do it and I think that um, one of the great things about what you do is is you show people what you do on on your YouTube videos you give them this beautiful vision without being like you know you you, you ins- you're it's inspiring without teaching because I mean, you're not giving people measurements you're, you're 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 showing them what to do to give them a, but the potential it's within them in order to kind of go farther yeah that's that's the whole goal i i education is you know way down the list of of targets of the things that i uh, that i'm trying to do i'm trying to entertain people and inspire them to go like their own fire you hmm. know what i mean metaphorically and literally you yeah. know I, I want people to go i i don't care if they go and do blacksmithing i like the idea of people watching me in this journey and then going, God, gee whiz, you know, that really makes me want to go do woodwork. You know, oh, this makes me want to get into jewelry because they get to share in my excitement and, and education. P.S., I just have funny stories. I've, you've actually inspired two IT guys that I met down in Florida who came into a uh, class with uh, some of your hammers. Oh, that's cool. And it was, it, was, it was super cool because, you know, all of a sudden I show up and there was an Uri Hoffy forge hammer and there was one of Ben Snur's hammers and there was a, a, well, two of your hammers and stuff like that. And it was very interesting. These guys were in their 40s and they were super into your videos. And I said, oh, you got these are the original set. I think you did uh, like 100 hammers or 100, you did one set of like the, uh, 150 hammers or... I'm not 100 percent sure. I, I think it was like a project. I, I did. These, I did a few guys. batches at a different point. At one point, I was just making hammers to order, um, but then you know the last big run I did was you know, 50 or 75 hammers. I, it, this was these these were these were you know IT guys, and on the weekends they they go out and then they try to they forge with with these big beautiful hammers, and it was really cool because it was just like the inspiration isn't just for kids. So so how, what made you decide? that you could figure a way to amortize things by using YouTube. And what made you decide to document what you were doing? Well, I was, at the time I was teaching classes and selling tools, and I had just created an online school. So that was what was, what was kind of going on at the time. And so I was obviously trying to 
find a way to make a living and make money and make more money. And I saw Casey Neistat was publishing videos every single day and had a daily vlog. And I stumbled across this mm. daily vlog, him, him showcasing life in New York City and, and his life. And he was publishing things every day. And I had no idea ever that people would want to watch the same form of content every single day. And I was so shocked to see that the guy was pulling in some serious views. And not only that, the views that he was pulling in meant that he was making like 100 grand a month or more from making these videos. And I thought to myself, gee whiz, it'd be kind of cool to have just even a tiny slice of that pie. What if, you know, I'll never get to that point, but what if I start making daily videos and I make a show that engages people so much that they'll then want to buy more of my tools because we have a, a relationship together because I'm you know, saying hello to them every day and chatting with them and sharing my journey. What if that makes them then want to sign up for a class more? Well, it made total sense that obviously, you know, if you make good content for people and they enjoy it, they're going to want to come and you know, enjoy more of that um, where they can and, and that can translate to making more money. And so the idea was is you know, grow the business by making videos and, and making daily videos. And that's what I started doing until I, we just physically did not have the, uh, the energy to be able to continue doing them every single day. And so it's kind of over the last four years has tapered into not daily videos. It's such a, it's such a huge amount of work. So I've become friends with some YouTube people and it just seems like it's an exorbitant amount of work and, I, and, and to the point where somebody, you know, you've inspired most of these people too, being PS, you know that as well. I mean, your YouTube videos are so much fun to watch and you, 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 you have such a presence and, and, and stuff like that. And then you get people fired up and I know a few guys who are just like, I'm going to, you know, Al can do it, I'm going to do it. And they, they don't have the, they don't have the inner fortitude to keep going. You know, there's, there's, there's this, uh, it's it's not easy, and and the editing and the, all the hard work and just I just don't know how you have the time to do it all. It's it's a real challenge, you know. To put it into perspective, now, now we are spending thousands and thousands of dollars for every episode. You know, every episode is costing between two to three thousand dollars to make on average. Let's say. Really. You know, so it's it costs a lot of money because you got a you know I've I've got a full time editor. And you know now our videos also have a full-time videographer. They have Will. And, you know, I mean, imagine a video takes three, four, five days to make, and you have that many people on payroll. It doesn't take too long to work out how you can then end up end up spending a few thousand dollars on it. And so, in perspective of how expensive making videos can can be when you're trying to pay people to make videos. Well, yeah, making videos is really difficult because when you've got to pay for it, when you're paying other people to, to, to make the operation exist, it's expensive. And so that's why people burn out on it is because it is hard work. It requires lots of hours. It requires skill. And when you do it all yourself, it is exhausting. 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 Yeah. It's I, like I, trying I mean, to take on another, I, I, another, another full-time job. Because we were, we were at one point, one point, you know, a few years ago, I was talking to my business partner and saying, maybe we should do a YouTube channel. Or he said it. And I said, well, you know, I think I said it. And he said, just think about it. And he said, well, here's the problem. The problem is, is you're in a business where you're making knives. You're not making content. Yes, you might be able to drive some business up, but the amount of work and energy 
to get them done. And not to mention, you have to be consistent. There needs to be consistency because you're creating a TV show and you want to make sure people tune in every week. And if you go away for a while, they stop tuning in. That's exactly right. And that's, that is the, uh, that is the, I, I, I'm, I don't have the right analogy, you know, the right metaphor for, for what it is, but that's the thing that's been chasing me from behind for the last um, several years is, for, like, I, if I stop, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of screwed. <laughs> you know, I can't just, like, right. stop and take a few months off. And I couldn't do it when it was just me, because if I wanted to stop and take a few months off from making videos, well, you know, you come back and then nobody knows, who's, nobody knows who you are. You know, they forget about you because there's a lot more other interesting stuff in the world. You know, the internet, there's so much competition for attention. You know, you go on YouTube, there's a hundred bits of content to watch. You can refresh the page and get a hundred new, brand new, fresh bits of content to watch, and you can you can completely forget about your interests of last month. I mean, how, how often have I fallen down a rabbit hole, you know, where I'm interested in this new hobby and I'm watching videos my YouTube recommended is entirely about that hobby, but then two months later I'm onto something else. And of course a YouTuber that publishes a video in relation to the previous hobby isn't gonna get my attention because I'm onto something else. They lost my attention for whatever reason. Mm. The same thing applies We've got to keep the content going because if you lose people's attention, you then no longer keep popping up in, uh, in, in, in their routines and their habits. Well, they're going to start to not get that interested because part of what's interesting is that relatable journey where they can kind of expect to check in every once in a while. So how far in advance do you do... Uh do you plan out the content? I mean, do you have like time? I'm not saying, I don't mean to say storylines as in like that's disrespectful, but like projects and stuff like that. How far in advance do you have them? Not, not far in advance at all. You know, I, oh, really? in the grand scheme of YouTubers, it is, you know, laughable how little um, I have put into ideas, concepts, planning. Um, you know, there's, we're very much reactive and and uh, fighting fires more than we are kind of planning things long term at, at the moment. Hmm. That, that 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 would scare me, and especially because you know with the blacksmithing, you know it is so per, per, uh, if to do it correctly. And when I say correctly, is to meet your meet the vision that you have. I'm not talking about well, like it could have I miss hit here could have been better there. It's more about like. You know, making a plan at the end of the day, you've used your organization to kind of uh, execute your idea. I would think for you, especially considering you have, you know, you get a lot of people on the payroll and you're doing all these great videos that you'd have like, all right, next next project we're going to do this particular type of sword and maybe I'll do a, a Alec and Alec versus Will. And I, I would th think you have like kind of, especially to keep all your people prepared. Because, I mean, it's hard to, like, you know, you want to make sure that they're working, too. They can't sit around. You need to be prepared. Yeah, I, I'm, just not, I'm just not very good at that side of things. It's not my strong suit. It's not, it's, it's not really me all that well. And it is one of, my, one of my great faults is I'm just not really that type of organized. I'm, I'm much more uh, do it as it comes which is difficult when you're trying to run a business. Of course, and now let's talk about your business. I love Alex Steelco, 
And I and one of the reasons why is because not only are you making the the stuff the the, the stuff to sell, but it's like real stuff. There's a company in New York that for years has been selling these axes that they dip in paint and then they you know they sell them to guys in Soho to walk around with in the street. And these are wall hanging you know, axes and stuff like that. And you know some of the stuff is like you know it's like when you see these what you refer to as hipsters walking around Brooklyn with the lumberjack shirts and stuff. I, I love the fact that you've created all this business where you're making stuff for other makers and you're the stuff that besides the 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 you know being able to provide grinders and and anvils and and now kitchen knives what I want to talk about you're making real things that you use we're trying to it's uh it's a very very big challenge and a very complex puzzle did you think that you, did you is this something that you always wanted to do yes absolutely i i really so part of the reason for really wanting to do this is I've done little bits of this in the past. In the past, I was making and selling tools. And I knew that people wanted them. You know, and I knew that there was, there was a demand for it. Because in the past, when I had 50,000 subscribers, I you know, sold 100 hammers and was able to make some money doing that. And so of course, why not do that and try and do that now with 2 million subscribers? You know, surely it's then. you know multiplies up accordingly. And so there's that kind of historical, um, there's that historical success that prompted me to want to do it, where I've been successful at it in the past with different things, and I've sold various things in the past. Uh, but then there's also the idea of, you know, okay, well, what happened if YouTube just stopped paying quite as well as it was, or if I didn't want to make YouTube videos anymore? Would there be anything more to sustain, uh, to sustain me, and anything more that I could have that would be, uh, that would have better longevity than simply YouTube videos. You know, hence the idea of trying to make a supply company that was selling something that was more durable than just a, a video on the internet that's kind of here today, gone tomorrow. And you're using guys like Bill Banky, and you're making stuff for real people, and the the guys who make your. Uh uh, the brooches, I, I, it's it's just it's just I love I love how you've gone about doing this, including down to your pants. The pants are great. My only complaint, which I've already told you, is you know some of us aren't 36, 34 ways. We gotta we gotta we gotta help, help guys like me out the thirty eight ways at some point. I'm sorry about that. There was only there was yeah, only there sorry. was only so many uh, so many I could so many sizes that I could get on the on the first run without kind of being irresponsible in my view with the outlay on an unproven product. How many complaints from larger guys like me did oh, you get? We've got, we've got a good amount of them, which, which was, <laughs> you know, which was, you know, it's funny actually, because I felt really confident about the sizing that I, that I selected because I did an Instagram poll. Well, Instagram polls are, are not necessarily that accurate an Instagram poll about what size pants people wear, and apparently, which blew my mind, and I should have been way more skeptical, apparently, like a 30, 32 is the most popular size of pants. That's crazy. Absolutely not true, and I know why. I know that it's not true, rather, because we've got a, like a few boxes of unopened 30, 32 pants still sitting in our warehouse, burning a hole in the ground. And so, 
I, Why do you think that is? Why do you think they wrote 3032? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe somebody was like, aha, I have an idea. I don't like this person. I am going to spam him with small sizes for little boys. What do you... I doubt that that's the what, case. <laughs> you know, who knows what it was? Maybe it's just because there's a selection you... bias with Instagram likely to, you know, bias more towards a younger audience um, than, uh, than the older audience. Younger people, maybe in their kind of teens and early 20s, are probably more likely to respond to my Instagram survey than, you know, the person that's, you know, got a 38-inch waist and is, you know, out trying to earn some money. I can't believe these, these poor people, I mean, not the poor people, these, these awful people, made you buy all these 3032 pants. I don't know about I mean, that's crazy. people. Who knows? Who knows? Oh, they're fine. I'm just kidding. I'm being a little bit. A little bit you know, maybe when, they fill, yeah, maybe when they fill out a little bit, they'll buy them. So if, we, if, if they I mean, sit on seriously. the shelves for a little while, eventually we'll have a clientele for it. I know that when I sell T-shirts and sweatshirts, which I love, I, and you, you, do, you, got, you do a great job of those. I got a few few your sweatshirts and, and T-shirts. I think they're great. I always... I always say I'm not people want smalls. I buy a couple smalls. I don't get too many smalls just because I, I know the smalls don't go very far. So I I gotta tell I gotta talk about the knife. And one of the things about the knife that is so amazing, the Galatin, is at first when I heard the name of your chef knife, which is beautiful, PS, I originally thought, Oh my god, Alec is like a is like a professional chef. And I and I thought and I thought and because the name Galatine, I confused it with the term Galatine. Do you know what a Galatine no, is? No, what is a Galatine? A Galatine is a famous French dish, where you bone out a chicken, and then you stuff the chicken. So you take out the entire carcass and then you leave it intact, and then you roll um, stuffing inside the chicken and then you tie it up almost like a, you know, it's, you ends up with this beautiful log. And then you can see these kind of legs hanging out, stuff like that. But it's it's a classic French dish called a galatine. And I was just like, oh, no, no. And then I was, all of a sudden, I was just like, that is unbelievable if you named it after a French dish. And then I realized that that's, the spelling isn't correct, and that isn't what it was at all. Um, but I looked into Gallatin, the name, the name Gallatin. I got obsessed with the name because it's named after Gallatin County or Gallatin River, right? Yes, that's correct. Do you know the history of that that name, who that person was? I Albert Gallatin was a Swiss immigrant who became one of Thomas Jefferson's Secretary of Treasury. He came to the United States. He ended up um, becoming this very successful Secretary of Treasury under Thomas Jefferson. And then he, 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 they named it after the Gallatin River after him. By Meriwether, um, who is the, who are the famous guys who uh, the the famous couple who uh, Lewis and Clark. crossed the uh, Lewis and Clark Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark named that river after him, and then Gallatin ended up becoming the senator of Pennsylvania. I got obsessed with this, just the name. We didn't start with the knife yet. And then he ended up dying in Astoria, Queens. He was well-respected as a politician, obviously. I mean, they named, you know, this, you know, this immigrant politician, this immigrant, the Swiss politician. And he, it was very tricky because he was from, he was from Geneva. So it was like, he could only go so far, but he became a, the senator of Pennsylvania. He ended up dying in 
Story Queens. He's buried in Trinity Church. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this back up, and I, you know, you could make whatever you want out of it. Trinity Church is this amazing church down by the World Trade Center. And after the world, after 9/11, there was a lot of opportunities for sculptors to make. Uh, we applied. I actually actually got invited to apply to take some steel from the 9/11. Uh, the the steel from the 9-11 to make sculpture and Fred Christ ended up making the this giant beautiful cross out of I-beams from 9-11 and I just it was this funny talk about a rabbit hole the name Gallatin is there's a similarity with you and Gallatin because you, you come from a different, mm-hmm. different country and you made an impact in, in, the, in the United States and I just I had to like I had to just let you know that the name was I just got obsessed with the name that's awesome that's very very. How does the how does the knife? How did you come up with the knife? How did you and that, and and Will come up with that the, knife? The credit is all owed to Will on that knife. That is that is, you know, ninety nine and a ninety nine point nine percent all Will Stelter, and so, you know, the, I I would hand all credit and, and all accolades across to him. You know the, uh, the knife is awesome, but it's it's his design. You know, it's something that he's kind of wanted to you know put into steel for a long time and so huh. you know, credit credit all goes to will on that look at you will stelter We're, i i p.s i'm being very well behaved because I, I i have to make sure i'm i become very friendly with will's mother and uh i make sure that whenever i had there's a podcast that she might listen to i have to behave myself. Yeah, yeah otherwise so otherwise one, she'll she'll get upset merry christmas mrs stelter i'm with you um <laughs> So what's the next? So what's the next step? What's the next step with the shop in Montana? The next step with the shop in Montana is, you know, all of the Alex Steele Co. stuff is going to keep going on, and filming just isn't going to happen from it until I'm back there. Oh really? So 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 there. So okay, okay, I understand. So I I just I just thought maybe Will would be doing stuff, but I got to I got to ask you another question, and this is something that Craig has been obsessed with, the. Uh, the Bradley him go you know, Will dropping his the, Fairbanks. the Bradley power him the Fairbanks my my bad the Fairbanks who had the idea to put a camera outside the shop well that's the security system who so it that's on all the time that is one of the greatest saddest and tragic videos of all time i thought Somebody's got to get the Academy Award for that particular scene. That you were able to have that security camera capture that Fairbanks falling over. It was it was like unbelievable. I thought, I, I can't believe they figured out how to put a camera up there. It, goodness, I completely agree. The, the the fortune that we have that shot is what luck. You know, I mean, what luck? Because there's only such a an angle that that camera covers. What luck that we got the shot. It is horrifying. The scream, it just echoes in my head, hearing Wills just yell at the top of his lungs. You know, composed, composed, lovable, happy Will with this cry of just desperation, this plea against gravity echoing through the tinny speakers of, uh, of that CCTV camera it is just Can you, awful. I mean, it is, I mean, p- personally, 
I think it was one of the great moments in because you had so much invested in that project. It will have invested in that project. I think that he realized that security cameras on when he laid down on the ground. That's my personal I, opinion. I, 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 think don't, there was a little I don't bit think so. I don't think no? so, no, because uh. he called me. Uh, he called me, and it ends up in the video. He calls me right after it falls. Being, he sends me a photo on his phone. He calls me right after it, uh, right after the, the thing falls, and he takes a photo. And I had just like 9:30 p.m. I'm in bed. I just see this photo of the broken power. And he calls me, and uh, then it was a few minutes after that that he asks, "Hey, can you check the security cam footage and see if it got it?" Oh so I then God. checked the security cam check footage, the and I saw it, and it was just. You know, it's really difficult. And Jeff, we've got to be so careful because this is a machine that Will has got when he was 17. You know, I mean, there, there's, some, yeah. there's some history to this machine. Like, right. that's a big deal. This is a machine he got when he was 17. And he has just spent months of his life working on this machine. He's driven to Spokane, you know, twice to work on this machine, once on, on um, you know, some, some guides that he made with Jason, once on some dies. The dies cracked. You know, it's been a tough, tough thing, and he's just put his heart and soul into this thing. So it's. Would you say that that's one of your, one of your most, I mean, emotional moments on any of your videos? I, I'd say it's one of the most emotional moments. Yeah, but the thing that I say that we've got to be careful about is, 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 is you've got to be careful with acknowledging that it's an incredible bit of footage, because it's also incredibly sad. It's an terribly sad piece of footage. Like, I mean, it's it's the 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 fact that we have the footage is very fortunate. But that has you had to say that one has to completely abandon and push to the side the fact that like Will lost his pride and joy, which is obviously terrible, and that Will almost bloody well died underneath it. Right. You know, in the footage, thank God he got himself out because he almost he almost got killed under the machine as it fell. He was trying to, he was trying to see. Yeah, and it was, I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it's one thing for, for, for me to, you know, say yeah, it's a beautiful piece of footage, you know, putting that stuff aside and, and all that, but like, yeah, I mean, it's dangerous. He almost died, he almost lost his legs. It could have been so bad. My videographer, Isaiah, he could have got, could have got hurt. Like, the situation was terrible, but, you know, putting that aside, the, you know, it's, it's an emotional bit of content. Yeah, you made some lemons. Lemonade. You made lemonade, right? A little bit. That's a tasty bit of lemonade. A little bit. I, 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 if you were to, if you were to say your most proudest moments in any of your YouTube uh, videos, what would you say they were? That's a good question. My most proudest moments. <clears throat> I think making my wife's engagement ring. I'm very proud of that. I think that that was a really cool thing you know by the standard of a full-time jeweler is it is it you know perfect and great no but for the skill level that I had I thought that was an awesome challenge and it obviously for obvious reasons means a, a whole lot to me um, and, and, and to my wife that I got to make that so that is something I'm proud of I'm proud of the Viking sword that I made um, I'm actually also quite proud of that bicycle I made recently that was amazing that was that, that. It was also. I would be scared to ride something I built. I have thrashed that thing, like I have 
beaten the crap out of that life, of, out of that bicycle, and it just somehow stays in one piece. I, I, when, I, when I talk to people, especially uh, blacksmiths, I always ask what the goal, not the goal, but what's the focus. I, you know, I'm a student at Uri Hoffi, and Uri Hoffi used to say to me all the time, we need to figure out what, where the blacksmith lies in modern-day man, you know, and modern-day work, modern-day architecture, modern-day whatever. You know, back in the day, blacksmiths, it was the, it was the most, one of the most uh, job secure, you know, jobs you could, you know, careers you could have. I always wonder, and I pose this to some people every so often, what is the role of the modern day blacksmith? And I want, and I, and I, and what I do love about what you do is you incorporate equipment that obviously old blacksmiths, well, you can't, you know, tenon and, you know, mortise and tenon and you can't, you know, drift to make a, to make a bicycle, a fully forged bicycle. Or maybe you can. I have no idea. But I wonder. I love the fact that you're able to incorporate, you know, modern techniques in order to kind of fulfill your projects. And the bicycle was that was. I mean, was there any? Could you do? Could there possibly be a way to do any forging on that bicycle? Yeah, there was a way I could have done some forging, and and I had set out with that a little bit in mind. So, for example, if 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 you picture a bike in your head, you know, where you turn the pedals, that would be the, 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 in yeah. the bearing of where your pedals are turning is the bottom bracket area. Off that come your chain stays, which go out and connect to the, uh, um, to the rear wheel of the bike. And the connection between those chain stays and that bottom bracket, that bit of round tube there, um, you can create what's called a yoke which kind of gives you the appropriate clearance between the chain stays and the tire, and then on the other side between the chain stays and the, uh, the big sprocket that you're, that you're pedaling. And so I thought about forging that yoke, and that would have been totally something I could have done. I could have forged it, and, and it would have worked out fine. But you know, by the time I was on my second frame, and I had to scrap the first one, and it was taking a long time, I had to keep things a little bit simpler and not introduce new, <laughs> new areas for failure. Wow, but, but you you have such a self-deprecating uh, style that allows you to kind of it's very it's very approachable, and I, and I, and I and I think it's probably it probably helps you as well. It probably helps you get through, you know, these things where you're just like you know you're the every man. I, and, and it's it is you know I think that in I am generally rather self-deprecatory. But there is also an aspect of it which is intentional, which is there's just, you know, there's no way to make good content where, <laughs> where you just don't get anything done because you're too busy hiding the mistakes. You know, I, I, I can't afford to do that. I have to share the mistakes because it's an interesting part of the process. And so people see me make it's mistakes and I joke about it and make fun of myself because otherwise I wouldn't have any videos to make. <laughs> I mean, it's the, it's, I mean, but it is, it is definitely a, it is a, I, cause I'm a, I love self-deprecating humor. I, my, my whole family, we always, everything's either gallows humor or self-deprecating. Mm -hmm. And it is a, it is a way of protecting yourself. It is kind of like a, it's a forceful way. It's not a forceful way. It's a very passive way of, of, uh, a protection, protection, because I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how, I mean, you're now at the point where you, as far as I'm concerned, you're one of the biggest, you're one of the most influential makers, uh, especially on YouTube, but, you know, in general, in the world. And I wonder how you, 
you're able to do it without, you know, being subjected to criticism or, or being able to do it without, you know, because I know that YouTubers, especially, and I've heard you and Will talk about, like, the commenters, I, I can't, I'm too uh, fragile, I'm too uh, fickle and fragile, I'm too fragile to actually look at YouTube comments. Um, and I just, I wonder how you do it, because I know you do. Yeah, I mean, it, it just hurts sometimes. <laughs> It does, doesn't just it? Just reading the comments hurts sometimes. Um, I, and I think in the past, I've kind of just, you know, might have said things in this type of situation like, oh, you just got to ignore it. But it's difficult. You know, you can't really do that. You know, you put your heart and soul into something and then, you know, people say you know, mean things. Yeah, it sucks and it hurts. And it's not fun all the time. I don't understand it, I'll be honest with you, because like I was involved with one YouTube video and now I'm just like I'm loath to even be Never you know, again. not that they've asked me again. They thought they'd asked me again, but I'm like I'm not looking for it. And I just remember I was talking to Jesse Ueta and she does YouTube comment con, uh, content uh, and uh, we were I was playing this game. Uh, it was like one of the first episodes of this full blast podcast. It was called the self deprecation tank. And I wanted her to read me her most either hurtful or funny YouTube comments and I read mine. I it was the first time I had read the YouTube comments, and you know on Knife Talk, Craig would you know read them to me and stuff like that just to be funny and stuff like that. But I read them, and there was one guy, and he was just making a comment. He says this guy doesn't know anything about fifty two hundred steel. Fifty two one hundred is stainless, and he's saying it's not, and he's going all crazy. And then on the podcast, I was telling Jesse about it. And I said, this guy, of all of them, this is the worst because he's saying that I'm a liar. And I got so angry. The listeners of the podcast went onto the YouTube channel and they destroyed this guy to the point where he erased the comments good. and then attacked me about something else. Um. And I said to myself, I cannot look at this ever again. I can't, I can't allow this to, to color the way I put things out especially with this these podcasts i we we once in a while we'll get something that's like vicious and it 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 destroys me for a few days because i can't stop thinking about the motivation and i just i'm very proud that you're a not proud is the right word but i'm impressed that you're able to kind of like get through it because your 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 viewership is just so high i mean how do you take how do you how do you deal with it at the end of the day, I've got a job, which is, you know, I make videos and that pays the bills and employs people. And so there's, there's, a, there's a few things that are more important than just necessarily how I feel about making the video, right. you know. Um, something that is really present in my mind is that I, I, I don't really feel like my creativity is all the way there and has been all the way there for a long time. I haven't felt like I've, you know, been working that creative muscle in a long time because there's a lot of other things that I'm also doing and, and focusing on where I don't get to do the thing that I really want to do, which is I just want to make something with my hands and be creative. And so, for example, it really sucks when I get people comment things like, wow, you know, Alec, you've really gone downhill. You used to be, you know, X, Y, Z. You know, like that, like it really, it really hurts a lot because it's like I know I, I am not making things the way I used to make things. You know, I, I, I know I'm not 
you know, filled with the same energy and creativity that I once was. But then on the other side of things, there's a reason for that, and it's because there's a lot of extra responsibility on my shoulders and a lot of extra burden on the shoulders that means that I can't necessarily commit the same amount into um, that aspect of things. And the result of that is, is that I just, just got to suck it up and make a, make a damn video because it's my job. It's what I do. It, but these people wouldn't say this to your face. No. And, and you know what's interesting is you'll sometimes get people like comment really horrible things or DM a horrible thing. And then you reply being like, hey, that's not very nice. And they go, oh, my goodness, you replied. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's, it's as if... It's you're looking for. It's like um, you're looking for some type of. Re I always think that these people want to be heard, but at the, at the same time, I don't want to listen. And I think that anything they can do to get your attention, it's it's like it's totally deranged. And I think that they take you for granted because you are like a, you're a television channel. But the, I just I don't know. I I, I I I when I talk to Chris, my buddy Chris Zepp, and he he loves to 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 read the YouTube comments and and owner Kaglar uh, dies in every film. He's created a whole extra evergreen content by screen capping the pe things that people write and then he posts them and then he blasts them. But he's a he's a different situation, you know. I just I I'm amazed that somebody like you who's very supportive of people and creating content has to deal with it but it, I'm you know I, I'm sorry I'm so, I'm apologizing in in uh, I mean I had nothing to do with it but I, I'm sorry that you have to do that well you know so, you got people to, you got mouths to hey feed. sometimes it's sometimes it's deserved you know like sometimes the work that uh, the work that we put out isn't everything that we'd want it to be and and there's criticism and it's like yeah I kind of yeah, that that one I kind of agree with actually <laughs> there was I wish I could remember I saw a hilarious video, a hilarious comment. Oh, and it was something along, something about, you know, ads, you know, and it was poking fun and, 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 and it was, you know, a negative comment about the ads that we have in our videos. And I thought to myself, that's a really funny comment. And that's absolutely true. You know, that's, that, that's, that's funny. That's, I'll hold my hand up to that. That's well-deserved criticism. We got, um, you know, for the Makery Network, we got all these ads. And Chris, and we got a criticism too. They don't want to hear the, you know, for some reason with the way they go in, they're, they're, not, they're not put in the best spots. Chris Zepp was complaining on his podcast, the Handmade Podcast, about ads. And Craig heard it. And as soon as he said, all right, and that's just the way it is, Craig stuck an ad in right there at the end of the, when people are complaining, when he's talking about people complaining about the ads. Craig totally just like you know stuck it right in. And I think that's hilarious. I, I, I just I, I wonder you know that we get the same thing on Knife Talk. People don't people don't like the ads. What I mean, if you back to your being creative, if you could just do whatever you want right now, let's just not think about think about anything else. If you could be creative and do something right now, what would it be? I'd like to. Forge some furniture. Try making a gate, like that type of stuff. You know, I'd like to forge some things. Huh. P.S. That 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 table, that chair. I mean, that uh, chair you made with Tyler was amazing. I really appreciate that. That really means a lot, especially considering your blacksmithing roots. That means a lot. Ah, don't worry about. I'm a, don't worry about that. I, I'm just saying that. I mean, I, I the only thing that was crazy to me was how late you guys were up, because I was 
you know, just about to have, you know, that was right before I interviewed Tyler and he was like texting me. He's like, I don't know, it's two o'clock in the morning. I don't know what, what it is. And I'm trying to get it. And I told him, I said, take a day, just relax, get some sleep. I don't want you coming in like, you know, hot off the, uh, the highway and then right on the podcast. Yeah, that was, that was a good time. That was some hard work. So wrapping things up, Alex Steele, if you got a call from Buckingham Palace, and they said, we need, this is Prince William, I'm going to be the king, I'm ready to, to take over the, my grandmother's duties, but I need a new sword. Would you make oh, Heck yeah, I'd make the sword. I mean, it depends if they're paying or if they're just doing it for exposure. <laughs> you, you, are you being serious? If they say to me, we're not paying, but maybe there's a knighthood down the line. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean... Got mouths to feed, you know. <laughs> uh, right. it, de- Prince it depends. William, it depends. William, I, got... I, I'm not. I'm not like super into the royals. I, I don't. You know, I, I. I'm not very well educated on the subject, despite being English. So I. Hmm. I don't think it would mean enough to me to want to make a, 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 a sword worthy. Because here's the thing: it's not just making a sword. You've got to make a sword that's real nice. You know, for this to be worthy of a royal. And a sword that's real nice and worthy of a royal is also going to be worth tens of thousands of dollars and it's going to spend a month, it's going to take a month or two to make. You know, do you want to go ahead and do that for free? If I can make YouTube videos out of it? Actually, yeah. Now, now I'm second think, now I'm second guessing it. If there was the opportunity, the photo opportunity of presenting it to the royal, yes, I would make them a royal, a beautiful sword for free it, if there was a photo opportunity at the end. Well, of course, there has to be a photo opportunity. I mean, even Craig Lockwood has a picture of him shaking hands with me. <laughs> you know? So there we go. So here's the next question. Next question. Being verified on Instagram or a knighthood, what is more valuable? I'll take the knighthood. I have applied for Instagram really? verification so many times, and they just will not give it to me. So I've given up all hope, and, and I think I probably stand a better chance... <laughs> That's ridiculous. I don't know. I don't stand a chance at a knighthood, but I've been rejected enough times for the Instagram verification. Maybe I do. Do you know they verified that goofball Fingal Ferguson? Who's that? Fingal Ferguson is one of the great Irish knife makers. He makes culinary knives in Ireland. He was on the cover of Food and Wine in Ireland uh, not too long ago. And he makes incredible knives, and they just verified him. And I sent, I sent him a message, and I said... How come you're the first knife maker to be verified? What a goofball like you get gets verified, and he's just like there was too many people uh, who were uh, who were imp- impersonating me. Uh, interesting. Interesting. I don't think I think you shouldn't give it up. I think you need that verification or the knighthood. I think you're too young for the knighthood, but you've done so much at a young age. You never know. Yeah, but you know, here's the thing. I, I, Instagram doesn't really do a whole lot for me. It just kind of sits there, and I occasionally post things. I, you know, I'm I'm no longer at the stage where I need to be sliding into anybody's DMs, um, you know, being a married man and all of that. So, you know, who cares if I if I don't have the verification symbol? There's nothing more to it. Look at you, <laughs> Alex Steele. He spent his Christmas with me. I'm just so thankful. Yes. Do you have any great Christmas memories? Do I have any? What's your What's your fondest Christmas oh, memory? Good question. I don't have one for you. I had, my mother had a party when I was younger, and she was in the, uh, 
fundraising business. And Mary Tyler Moore, do you know Mary Tyler Moore? No, I'm not familiar. She was she had a show back in the sixties called the Mary Tyler Moore Show. She's a huge American actress. And she was in our living room and she was admiring the Christmas tree. And she looked at one of the Christmas balls. This is a famous actress. This was uh she was with Dick Van Dyke on the you know, Dick Van Dyke show. She was the the wife on Dick Van Dyke. She's huge, huge in the United States. She takes one of the baubles off, puts it in her pocket. And I saw it as a young boy. And I said to my mother, Mary Tyler Moore just stole one of our, our Christmas ornaments. What are you going to do about it? And she said, I'm going to let her walk out of here. Let her, let her keep it. Mary Tyler Moore, God, God rest your soul. You're, you, it's, we, let you, we let you walk out of the house she's with the Christmas ornament. She's a petty thief. Well, she's dead now, so... She, well, she, she's a dead, no, petty thief. She, 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 uh, she slipped off into the grave. <laughs> so, Alec, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Do you me. have any words of Christmas words for the listeners of the Full Blast podcast? Oh, I mean, just the usual stuff. Happy Christmas. Enjoy it. Spend good time with family. Rest up well, and there we go. Oh, yippee-ki-yay. I can't say the rest of it. Oh, you know, I was I was PG this whole time for Mrs. Stelter. I didn't never realize. Do you think that Die Hard is a Christmas film? There's a, it's a controversy. Well, I think you only ever watch it at Christmas, and so by virtue of association, surely, surely it follows. Uh, Bruce Spring, uh, Bruce uh, Willis says it's not a Christmas movie. I don't. Know, I tend to think he's right. Doesn't he know? Yeah, he's apparently created? they asked him. They asked him if he thought it was a Christmas movie, and he says it's not well, a Christmas. Sometimes movie. your creations go on further, and, and live their own lives. There you go, Alex Steele. His his film. Everybody knows Alex Steele. PPS, did you watch The Mandalorian? No, I didn't. What did you do for two weeks in quarantine? What did I do? I don't know. I probably watched something else. (laughs) Oh, actually, you want to know? Here we go. Here's the scoop, just for the people who ended this. This is just ridiculous. What I did for two weeks in quarantine when I got back here to the UK. My wife started watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians, and so because I was okay. in the same living room, I have I spent two weeks watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. I can't believe it. That surprises me. You know what? The show it's is surpri- actually surprising. I would have never assumed that I'd be mildly interested. Uh, you know, from but yeah, it wasn't actually that bad. What's interesting about it? It's just kind of interesting. It's these are normal people that just live a life and you get to follow normal people's lives when they have boatloads of cash I don't know I, I, I was snowed in on Thursday and I was pacing the house I, I, I can't I, I, I was thinking about you two weeks in quarantine and all I can think of is he's just pacing the house <laughs> no you're not you're watching Kim Kardashian <laughs> exactly <laughs> just like everybody else isn't that ridiculous <laughs> No, it's great. I think it's great. I think whatever it takes sometimes. Well, it got me through it. Whatever it takes sometimes. Here we are. Thank you, Jeff. And here we are. Alex Steele, you all know where to follow Alex Steele. Thank you so much. Go get yourself a pair of pants. Go get yourself a knife. Go to alexsteelco.com. Get your file guides, your belts, your grinders. Go check them out. It's worth it. They're great. And he's great. And I wish you, the listener of the Full Blast Podcast, a wonderful Christmas. Peace and prosperity. This was a very wholesome episode. Next week, the return of Nico Tavernisi. We're going to do the downward spiral. Uh, 
2020 wrap up and it's going to be vicious so prepare yourselves and with that said Merry Christmas and all the best to you If you like this show take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network